Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Last week, Paul was in Athens. Um, if we have the map of the second missionary journey, Shane, we can put that up there. But Paul, last week, we were in Athens. Let's see. No, not that one. Try again. There's a couple more. I think that's it right there. Yep. So all the way in the top left, yes, top left in the orange section up there, that is Macedonia, and they are traveling south now. And Paul was in Athens, and you remember he preaches this amazing sermon about the unknown God. And just what an amazing sermon and then fruit that they had. There had some key converts, uh, Dionysus, who was uh, one of the leaders of the Areopagus. There was a woman there named Damaris and others with them as well. And so Paul leaves Athens and he's headed to Corinth. And of course, we're very familiar with Corinth. We get 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and this is the beginning of that church. This is the beginning of you know, when you read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, this is the beginning of the Corinthian church that we're going to study and read about tonight. So Acts 18.1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul goes to Corinth and he finds Priscilla and Aquila, which become a, a, you know, a couple that ends up helping him throughout his ministry. We're going to talk about them in just a minute. Um, but if you've read the New Testament, you've seen their name many times. Priscilla and Aquila, they were husband and wife. They're never mentioned alone. They're always mentioned together. It's, it's always the, you know, this power couple that they were serving God together. And man, marriage is really good when it's like that. You know, when you've got both people called, anointed, both praying, both serving. And boy, when you get a marriage like that, it's, it's beautiful. It doesn't always happen like that. They were in Corinth because... They were originally from Italy in Rome, but when Claudius was the emperor, there was a heavy persecution that broke out against the Jews, and so they, they had no choice but to flee. And when they fled, they fled to Corinth. Now, when Paul meets them, uh, it is assumed that they were already believers. It doesn't say that, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell how they came to know Christ. And if without getting too deep in the weeds tonight... Most scholars, when they read this, Aquila and Priscilla were already believers at this point, which would make sense why Paul went into their home, stayed with them, you know, immediately. They were of the same trade. They were tent makers. So presumably they already had some kind of little business going, and Paul, he, that was his trade. That was what he did. And so they started working together. They're living together, working together, and, and ministering together. So let's talk about... Uh, Corinth. In verse 4, it says, every day Paul would reason, uh, or not every day, every Sabbath, Paul would reason in the synagogue and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We already know this is his method of operation. He goes to the synagogue and he tries to reason on the Sabbath with Jews that'll listen if there are any Greeks that 
uh, attend or anything like that. He'll try to reason with them. And then usually in the marketplace day by day. So as he's in the marketplace making tents and and tent making was actually a lot more than just making tents. And we're going to get into that in a minute too. Um, but as he was doing that, he was ministering to people. And so very just, you know, normal, common, everyday thing, you know, just working. And then on the Sabbath, he'd go to church and he'd minister to people and talk about Jesus and try to persuade them. Let's talk about the city of Corinth because Corinth was a very unique city. And if you read First and Second Corinthians, you get a very good picture just from reading those letters of kind of the culture in Corinth. It was very... Uh, promiscuous. It was very sinful. It was very wicked. It was very worldly. It was very wealthy. So in a lot of ways, a lot like America, honestly, in a lot of ways, uh, but Paul seems to have been more fruitful in Corinth than he was in other places. And this, this strikes me. You know, this strikes me that you go to a place that's very wicked, very sinful. People are very far from God, yet more responsive to the gospel. Isn't that interesting? And, and, and that, you see that even today sometimes, how uh, actually people that have a measure of religiosity and they've been inoculated with a, a, an element of being religious sometimes are actually harder to reach than people that are just totally wicked and totally far from God. You know, when I first came uh, to Alexandria, I had more than one person tell me, Whatever you do, do not plant a church in Alexandria. <laughs> and this was the reason they were talking about. They were saying, basically, here was the, the idea. They were saying, everybody there already thinks that they know God and doesn't think that they have a need for God. In other words, there's a lot of religion. And it's very hard to get people to see their need for the gospel and their need for a savior. And one of the people that were telling me that, they'd actually tried to plant a church here. already, And they had a very successful church in Shreveport, doing great there, but had totally failed here. <laughs> and they're like, look, I'm doing really well here. Don't go here. All right, this was hard. This was hard ground. Well, the Lord, you know, it wasn't up to me, right? This is where he called us to come. So this is where we are. And he's graced us to do it. But I understand the point, and I understand the idea. This is why sometimes you go on the mission field, right? Other countries, maybe they haven't heard the gospel. You could have a, a conference or a revival. You might see thousands of people come out just hungry. Their life is in shambles. They've tried everything else and they're, they're hungry for God. If there's a God that loves me, that can forgive me, that can save me, I want to know about it. They're hungry. Uh, but sometimes religious people are actually harder to read. This is Paul's experience. Every time we read about going to a new city, what happens? Those that know the most about God and know the most about the Bible reject it and are, are the hardest to reach over and over and over again. Even though Paul is like hitting his head against a brick wall, he tries over and over and over again to reach the Jews. Because you would think they know the Bible. They already know God. They already know Yahweh. Let's start there. They're the ones that were the hardest to reach. They, they rejected it. I've found, in some ways, that to be true in ministry, that people that know the least about God and are the furthest away from God are sometimes easier to reach, easier to, to expose to the things of God um, because there's, just a, there's a hunger there. There's a humility there. There's a brokenness there. But for whatever reason, that was... The same thing that Paul experienced. So he has a lot of fruit in Corinth. And what ends up happening, Paul ends up visiting Corinth at least three times, that is recorded. And he wrote 
at least three letters to the Corinthians, which may shock you to hear that because you think of First and Second Corinthians, but there was another one. And all these letters were long. I mean, when you read First and Second Corinthians, it's one of the longest, you know, two of the longest letters other than Romans in the New Testament of the epistles. He just had a lot to say, a lot to deal with, a lot to pastor, a lot to wade through with them. But there was a lot of fruit in this city. He ends up staying in Corinth for 18 months. The reason I say there were three letters is because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, so this is 1 Corinthians. This is the first letter we have in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, so the, if we're in 1 Corinthians and he's referencing another letter that he already wrote, then it is presumed that this actually isn't the first letter that he wrote to him. So it'd be, we could correct our Bible and we could put it 2 Corinthians and 3 Corinthians and say, hey, we're, we're missing 1 Corinthians. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Maybe it was short. Maybe that was all he wrote. Hey, don't associate with sexually immoral people. The end. You know, maybe that was it. Maybe it was just more of a text message than anything else. We don't really know. But he does reference it. That not to, you know, he said, I wrote to you before, so that was there. A little bit about Corinth. I've already told you some. It was very wicked, and actually it was referred to as Sin City. That is not an original name, you know, for Las Vegas or New Orleans or whatever. That Sin City is, they referred to that in the ancient writings. That's how they referred to Corinth. And it was a large city for the time. It was about 400,000 people which was the largest city in Greece. Uh, and just for a reference point, New Orleans is 390,000. So right about the same size as New Orleans, Baton Rouge is 220,000. So Corinth was larger than actually New Orleans and Baton Rouge. 400,000 people. So big city, lots of ornate architecture and columns and pillars. When you think of Greece, you know, that's, that's Corinth. It's just typical, lot of wealth, lot of money. It was a major shipping port. They, they, it met at this north-south and east-west trade route, and you had, to, you had to go through there basically for any shipping, any trade, any of the uh, trading that was being done on the sea, you had to go right through Corinth. So it was very, very important. They had three harbors, so it was strategically located, and uh, it was a place of commercial trade. Merchants from all over the world would come to Corinth. It became one of the most dominant cultural centers of its day. It was materially prosperous, intellectually alert, but morally corrupt. Even in the pagan world, the city was known for its moral corruption. And actually, they, they coined a phrase called Corinthianize. And they would talk about people that, oh, that one, yeah, he went to Corinth and he's been Corinthianized, meaning he's lost all of his morals. He's been morally corrupt. He's been there, spent time and... You know, he's, he's been absorbed by the Corinthian culture. Um, and, and actually, I'm not going to get into all There's just too much to go into. But they, they, they were, there were some warnings even amongst the pagans and, the, and the, the captains of the ships and things. They would say, look, if you're doing business and you're going through there, don't spend too much time in Corinth because it'll... There's been many sailors, many ship captains that stopped at Corinth and basically never left because they got there, they lost all their money, they lost all their wits, they got absorbed into the culture and completely Corinthianized and 
lost everything as a result. So this, weren't, this, this was not Christians saying this. These were pagan people saying you got to be careful when you go to Corinth. It was that type of culture. I think of it, you know, very, again, very wicked, very promiscuous, very sinful. You can see one of the reasons why it was this way, kind of almost perverted, really. And the reason why was they worshipped the goddess Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and procreation. And we won't get into what their worship was like, but it wasn't good. And it was very perverse. And there were temples and all sorts of you know, things that went on. So it was a very, very perverse culture, but also at the same time, very wealthy, very opulent. And so very far from God, very far from God. Uh, the city featured, you know, shops, sprawling marketplaces, restored greatly, enlarged temple, temples, fresh water supplies, numerous public buildings, government buildings, and an amphitheater that sat over 14,000 people. That was very large. They actually held uh, a sort of like Olympic Games there every year, so it was a massive uh, event that was held there. And Julius Caesar is actually the one who rebuilt the city. He rebuilt the city himself long before Paul. But Julius Caesar actually rebuilt the city, and it had become a seat of government for Greece. So that just gives you a little bit about the city that they're in. And it fascinates me to see why, or to think about why Paul had more fruit there than he had you know, in some more Jewish cities, you know, where there was more of a strong Jewish population. But... We kind of already talked about that a little bit. So with all this, though, Corinth was very fertile ground. Very fertile ground. And when you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you see, though, the, the problems that come out of these baby Christians coming out of the Corinthian culture and getting saved. And if you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you see Paul having to deal with a lot of stuff that Maybe because we've been raised sort of in a, a Christian bubble, you know, particularly in the South, a lot of morality is kind of a, we understand and know it by default, you know, just being raised in a Christian culture, being raised in the South, we know a lot of uh, morality and things that are really based in the Bible, even if people don't realize it. But, but Corinth wasn't like that. And so you get a lot of Christians coming into the church. They're getting saved, but they still have a lot of habits from the Corinthian culture. And Paul's having to tell them really basic things like, hey, no, you, you can't sleep with your mother-in-law. You can't do that. That's a problem. You know? and, and this one, no, you can't, you can't do that. He's having to deal with a lot of sexual immorality. He's having to deal with a lot of foolishness because of the culture they went out of. They, you know, he has to deal with the, the meat being uh, sacrificed to idols and, and all of that because they, that was part of their worship and that was how they lived. And so he has to come in and say, no, you can't do this anymore. You, you are now set apart. This is the new standard. This is the new law. And th so there's a lot of teaching in the beginning of these letters that has to be done. So you see the problem. Well, this would be way different than in a more Jewish city where the people he's talking to already have a bunch of morality because they had the law. They had the Old Testament. They were raised in a very moral culture, a very, you know, even legalistic culture. So 
like when Paul, for example, writes to the Galatians or he writes to the Romans or he, he, he's dealing with something totally different. And you don't see the same tone at all in those letters because he's writing to a group of people that they already had the Old Testament. They already had morality, you know, from the law and things like this. So he's not having to deal with a lot of that stuff like he has to in Corinthians. When you read Corinthians, you're almost like, man, what's wrong with these people? These people are sick. You know, they got a big problem here. But for them, that was normal life. Everybody, that was how everyone was. You know, everybody was worshiping Aphrodite, and that was a big part of the culture, and these huge wild parties and, you know, all kinds of stuff that we're not even going to get into. But just, it was wild, and they came out of that, and they had to be pastored through that. You know, they, they had to be discipled through that. And I think uh, sometimes as a church, we haven't done well with that. You know, if, if someone comes in the church and they already have a Christian background, they were raised in a half-decent family, and they, maybe they were raised in church or they were exposed to church, and so they already have kind of a moral foundation there, well, yeah, if they sit in church, they, they're going to learn more and grow from there. But there's sometimes when people have come in the church that were just totally lost and had no church background, no, no Christian background, lives full of sin and brokenness and, and every kind of wickedness and sin, the church hasn't always done well with those people because it's like that's a lot more work. Even though they might be more receptive to the gospel like we are talking about in the beginning, there's also a lot more work that comes along with that because they've got a lot more you know, sin and maybe even addiction and things in their life that has to be worked, worked through. You know, you get, uh, this is just us talking about this, you know, this is, this is what Wednesday nights are for and, and what they're about. But if you get, if you get in, say, 10, what we'll call halfway normal people, halfway normal lives, halfway normal marriages, you know, halfway functional one person, one Christian, one good, godly, mature person that, that has really been following the Lord can come alongside probably 10 of those type of people and help them, minister to them, pastor them, help them. If you get one person that's life is truly broken and full of sin and full of addiction and completely ignorant of the word, that takes the same amount of time as it would take 10 of the others. Why am I saying that? Well, because every one of us are called to this. Every Christian is called to disciple and help other, other people. And if all you do, you might go, man, this person takes up a lot of time. You know, they, there's a lot of investment for them. Yeah, that's because some people, everybody comes into God. Everybody comes into church at a different level. Some people, man, it, it, it's going to be very time-consuming and I, and I say this, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but what we might call high maintenance, meaning it requires a lot, where others, you could just give a little bit here, a little bit there, hey, read this book, listen to this podcast, and they're just doing it, and they're growing, and it's, it's all they need. But sometimes people come in the church, and they need a massive amount of attention, and guess what? The pastor can't do it all. One, one person can't do it all. There has to be many people. There, there actually has to be dozens and dozens of people in the church that have, hey, I've walked a Christian life. I've gotten free in some areas. I've got my prayer life established. I've learned the word. Okay, I've listened to the podcast. I've done the work on my end, so now I can invest in somebody else. And 
every church has to have that, and uh, no church will grow or will be healthy unless you do have that. You have to have that. You have to have people that have gotten over their issues so they can help other people get over theirs. And again, this is something that the modern church has not done real, real well at. You know, it's like you got, in some ways, you got the professional people that do the ministering, and then the church comes, and we just let you do it, and then... But that's, Paul would have never survived like that. Paul could have never done ministry like that. Every place he went, he was only there for a short time, and he had to raise up people quickly that could stay behind and do the work of the ministry. And then they had to continue it. They had to raise up people. And so it was a big process. I guess what I want you to walk away with from that is, you know, where are you at in that process? You know, do you have... First of all, have you been discipled and have you grown? And this is such a big topic in discussion. Uh, we could spend a whole sermon talking about this. Being discipled doesn't mean that you personally have someone investing in you and sitting down with you and having coffee with you and just devoting their whole time to you. That would be glorious if everybody could have that, but everybody can't have that. Okay, so being disciple doesn't mean that someone's giving you individual attention. That, that can't happen with everyone. What being discipled means is, is that you recognize the place where God has called you and planted you. And when the word of God is going forth, you're absorbing it. You're taking it, not just as the word from man, but you're believing that God is involved. You're, you're taking it. You're listening to the podcast, and you're doing the work. And I'll say this, <clears throat> discipleship can happen. Imagine if you have a larger church, a larger church, people can walk into a church and be discipled even if they, ne they, they may never even meet the pastor. They could be discipled. They can be discipled. And here's what I found out about discipleship. It doesn't happen in, it doesn't really happen in church on a Sunday. It doesn't really happen in a counseling session it doesn't really even happen at a coffee shop. If somebody's sitting across from you and they're just pouring into you, you might think, oh, that's, that's discipleship and that's where the real change happens. Actually, all that's just talk. You know, even tonight, if I, everything I'm saying to you, everything that we're talking about, that's not where the real change happens. The real change happens when the talk turns into action. In other words, we've been talking about discipleship. You may be sitting here thinking, oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, amen. You may amen it. You may be nodding your head thinking that's real good. You know where the real change happens and where a person really grows in discipleship is where they actually do something about it. Where tonight when they walk out, they put a reminder in their phone. You know what? I, I need to text so-and-so. Because they're, they're coming, they're, they're just getting into the Lord, and they don't, they don't know anything. I just want to check on them, ask them, hey, can I, can I come by and see you? Can we, can we go grab lunch? Can we? See, that's where the real progress and the real change happens. So, so many times as church people, we get used to hearing really good information over and over and over and over and over again, and it never translates into actual change and actual action. But that's not healthy. Actually, Paul talked about that and said that that actually creates deception in your life. So it's not good. So the whole church, the whole body of Christ, ideally, everybody at different stages, everybody at different levels, is supposed to eventually be part of the discipleship process. They should be receiving discipleship, but they should also be giving discipleship. 
to, some, to someone else. It doesn't even have to be somebody in your church. I mean, it could just be a family member. It could be certainly your own children, your family. It could be somebody at work. But every Christian, eventually, if you think, well, I'm not ready for that. I don't know enough. I, I'm, I'm, that's fine. But you should be growing and getting to the place where you can disciple other people. And that's a necessary part of your growth. That's a necessary part of every Christian's growth. So, in the Corinthian church, because of Paul's uh, calling, um, Paul had to go on from one city to the next. And so he, he actually ended up only staying in Corinth for 18 months year and a half, but he had to move on. So Paul would set people in place, and, you know, this system was fast-moving. It was fast-paced. He would go into a city. He would plant churches. He would raise up people. He would leave them behind, and he would move on. That had its good points and its bad points. I mean, sometimes he would leave, and things would spiral out of control, and he's writing letters going, what in the world are y'all doing? Y'all have lost your mind. Y'all have let some things go. And so that's kind of what you see when you read First and Second Corinthians. There's a lot of things that have to be corrected, a lot of things that have to be dealt with, a lot of problems that are going on. But it ended up being a very strong church. Let's talk about Priscilla and Aquila. So as we mentioned, they were in Corinth due to the Jewish persecution under Emperor Claudius uh, that caused them to flee Italy. Paul lived with them, worked with them while he was in Corinth for 18 months. When he leaves Corinth, he ends up taking them with him. So very, ended up being very close to him. Uh, they, they were never mentioned separately in Scripture, so always together. I think this is significant. You know, again, as I said earlier, the, the power of a godly couple that both love God, that, that both have a prayer life. That both read the word. Not, one's not dragging the other person to church or having to constantly pull the other one up. Come on, you need to come. Come on, you need to come up here. No, both are going after God. Both are pursuing God. Listen, the, the power of that. And look, don't get discouraged if that's not you and you go, well, I wish I had that. I don't have that. Well, pray for it. Pray, pray for your spouse. Lead your spouse in a way that, that can help them grow to that. But in this case, everybody can't have that. Everybody doesn't have that. But Priscilla and Aquila had that, and you see the fruit in it. They were, they were a power couple. The reason this stands out to me, and this is interesting, because this is the only example I can think of in Scripture like this. You know, actually, Peter was married. I don't know somebody, if, some, if you, some of you knew that, but Paul mentions that in one of his letters, that Peter was married. But we don't ever hear anything about Peter's wife. I don't know if she was involved in the ministry with him or not. We only ever hear about Peter traveling. Peter did this. Peter said this. Peter wrote that. We don't ever hear about anything about his wife. And some of the other disciples had wives. We don't hear anything about their wives. But apparently, this, this couple, they were in it together. And I love that. I mean, I love that. My wife and I, that's how we strive to be. And really, that's how we've been since we were teenagers. We started dating in high school, and we were involved in ministry from the time we were teenagers. And I, I can't imagine doing ministry any other way. I mean, I, I, I have to, I depend on her for so much and vice versa. But uh, it's a very interesting relationship. You know, as, as you go through the New Testament, you find out that they had multiple churches that met in their houses, depending on where they were living. 
You know, one time they were in Ephesus and Paul said, you know, hey, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their house. Another time in, when he writes the book of Romans, he mentions that they have a church meeting in their house in Rome. So now they've moved, this is after the persecution, so now they've moved back to Rome and they've got a church meeting in their house there. And they're always doing it together. They're always mentioned together. Uh, I think they were mentioned seven times. Five of the times... Uh, Priscilla is mentioned first, which may or may not be significant. I don't really know that there's anything to that or not. I just say it's not normal. Most of the time, most of the time, the man would be mentioned first, but uh, but Priscilla was mentioned first five of the seven times when their name is written in Scripture. What does that mean? I don't know. That would just be a lot of speculation. But it's just something that caught my attention because. Um, that that makes me feel like she was very involved in the ministry and that the way Paul was thinking of when he thought about that couple, at least in those instances, for some reason he thought about her first. So I don't know if, you know, she was more involved to what degree. I don't know. Uh, but they were an awesome couple and they were a tremendous blessing to Paul. Uh, so yeah, Paul ends up leaving them in Ephesus. Later they end up having a church in their house and then while they're there, you may remember this from, from Scripture, Apollos comes through Ephesus, and Apollos was said to be one of the most eloquent, powerful preachers. You know, all the apostles thought of him that way. He was one of the most just dynamic uh, orators, very powerful at communicating. And when Apollos came through, it says that Priscilla and Aquila actually took him aside and taught him the way more accurately because he didn't actually have a full understanding of the gospel. He had a powerful understanding of John the Baptist and the repentance that John the Baptist taught, and he, he understood some of it, but he didn't have Paul's revelation. Well, Priscilla and Aquila had been with Paul, the apostle, making tents, breaking bread daily. He's living in your house. They've been discipled by Paul, and nobody had a greater revelation on the gospel than Paul the apostle. So, you know, when you read the New Testament, you get Paul's deep revelation about the cross and what was happening on the cross and our sonship and our redemption, and you just, you get all these, you know, deep things that you don't even get from the gospels. You don't, from the gospels, you wouldn't even know half of the stuff that Paul explains. So, Paul you know, he's given all this revelation to Priscilla and Aquila. Well, when, <clears throat> when Apollos comes along, Apollos doesn't have any of that. He loves God. He's got a gift on his life. He's a powerful communicator. But he just doesn't have that deep revelation that Paul had. Well, Priscilla and Aquila, they've been spending time with Paul. They, they understand. So they, they take him aside, the Bible says, and they explain more accurately the way of Christ to Apollo. So that, that gives you a little insight of their, you know, knowledge, even I would say of their manner, because to take someone who is a powerful communicator and doing the work of God and to communicate it to them in a way that they receive it and they're not offended by it, you know, that takes a little bit of tact. And so they, they were able to do that. On Paul's third missionary journey, he stays in Ephesus for three years and it is believed that he stayed with Aquila and Priscilla during this time as well. So later in Acts, we're going to get to the third missionary journey. He goes through Ephesus again. And Priscilla and Aquila were there. The church was meeting in their house. And in that three-year period, it is believed that Paul stayed with them again during that time. So they ended up being very close, close friends. 
This is Romans 16.3. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So this is Romans. This would be much later. Uh, this would be much later. So this is much later than we're reading about here in Corinth. So now they've gone back to Rome many years later. And they've planted a church there. They're living there. And so when Paul writes Romans, he mentions this. Now, there's no record in Acts of what he's referring to here. There's no scholarly work or information on what he's talking about. But look how unique this is. However, you know, was this while he was in Ephesus for three years? Was this while they were in Corinth? We don't know. But all these years later, this is still on his mind. When he mentions them, he, he says, look, Greek Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. And he mentions this detail, who risked their necks for my life. And again, we don't know what that was. We don't know how they did that. But apparently, they risked their neck for Paul. To what degree, how that happened, the scenario, we don't know. But notice he says here, also... To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for Priscilla and Aquila. So these, these guys were powerful. They were well known among all the churches, probably because they traveled with Paul a lot. So when he went, some of these churches that he planted, they would have been there. When he revisited on some of these missionary journeys, they were there. So, and plus, they kind of got around a lot themselves. They were in multiple different cities at different times. So Paul praised them, gave them thanks. He said, all the churches of the Gentiles give them thanks. What's interesting about them being back in Rome at this time is this, this puts them back in Rome during the time of Nero and the Great Fire. I don't know if you remember that from history where there was this great fire in Rome and there's all this debate in history because what ends up happening is this, this started a massive persecution uh, uh, amongst the Christians. They had relative peace up until this moment, and things started escalating. And when uh, the people, this is just one view of it. This is probably the most accepted view, that Nero actually set the fire himself. I don't know if this is familiar to anybody, if you've heard any of this, but from history. But Nero actually set the fire himself because he was going insane at that point, and it's a whole bunch of political stuff. But he ends up blaming the Christians as a scapegoat for the fire, and so persecution breaks out against the Christians, and it's deadly. It's one of the, it's one of the most intense persecutions in the history of the church. This happened in Rome, and during when, when Paul writes the book of Romans, that's when that persecution was happening. In Rome, so Priscilla and Aquila would have been in Rome when that happened. So think about that. This is their second time back to Rome. They end up having to flee a second time. This is how they end up in Ephesus. They have to flee again. Uh, well, well, some of this is speculation. We're assuming that they left Rome because of this persecution, which is really the only explanation for it. But they leave Rome again during this time of very difficult persecution under Nero. They end up back in Ephesus and have a church that's meeting in their home. Also, Paul mentions them in his final letter to 2 Timothy. Uh, the book of 2 Timothy is the very last letter that Paul writes uh, 
of his life and ministry. And in that letter, he mentions, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila again. Now, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus. He was the pastor of the Ephesus church. So when he writes 2 Timothy, um, Paul mentions that Priscilla and Aquila are still there. And he, he, he greets them again. So we know that he stayed in relationship with these two throughout his whole ministry because in his very last letter, he mentions them again. So this was a powerful couple and worthy of, of being emulated and you know, just to take a look at their faithfulness and their commitment. And we've already talked about before how it was a little bit difficult, difficult to work with Paul, and yet they were able to do that and stayed faithful. And look, not only worked with him, they lived with the man. Come on now. I mean, that's a whole different level. Whole different level. I remember in college, I had a few roommates I was real good friends with up until we became roommates. After that, things were never the same again. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to cover. I thought we were going to get a lot further than we did here. Uh, last thing I'll mention tonight is just a little bit about the tent making because you, you hear about this if you've been in church. you probably heard about this your whole life, you know, that Paul was a tent maker. And I want to just talk a little bit about that just, just to bring some little extra clarity to it because it's one of those interesting details about his life. Uh, you, you think of Paul, you know, as this super apostle that's just super holy and anointed and, and doing the work of God everywhere he goes. And sometimes uh, we, we don't think of him about just as a normal human being that actually had normal working skills and had normal jobs sometimes. And he was a craftsman that had a trade that, you know, he knew how to do these things. So he knew how to work with tools. He would have known how to sew and repair, and he would have had interactions with the public and conducted business and all of that. So tent making was, of course, a popular, as you can imagine, it was a popular trade because there was such a need for it, and it wasn't just tents. It was awnings. It was coverings for the amphitheater, and a big one was also sails for ships. So they would, they would produce sails out of the canvas, and then they would repair, of course, make repairs on all these things. And people would bring them tents and sails and things like that, and they would make repairs and all of that. You know, interestingly for Paul, you know, I, I don't think this was a massive part of his life. It may have been at one time earlier in his life, but as he started planting churches, you could imagine this was not a massive part of his life. I mean, his focus was planting churches, building churches, but you do see periods of time where he had to resort to this for one reason or another because he had to have money to live. A lot of times he was living off of offerings, donations from the churches, things because, you know, he's got Silas, he's got Timothy, he's got these guys and their food and their travel. And it's, you know, no, no, matter, no, how, no matter how holy you want to make it, it takes money to do ministry. That's just period. It does. And so he had you know, a way to supply himself, but the tent making was a supplement to that in times when he needed it to be. And he, he actually talks about this multiple times in the New Testament. A lot of times he talks to the churches and sometimes almost in a corrective way, he, he'll say, you know, I worked with my own hands and I provided my own way. Not that I didn't have a right for you to provide for me. 
And he, he almost corrects them saying, because those who bring the gospel worthy of honor, and he goes through this whole thing explaining how, you know, there's, there's, it, here's the idea that you see from the New Testament. It's almost like he's saying, look, I'm willing to do this, but that doesn't make it right. And we should also talk about what you're willing to do. Now, and he puts it back on the church saying, look, you know, just because I'm willing to do this doesn't mean that it's right for you to do it. I think of it like a parent that might come to you, you know, and say, um, oh, you know, you don't have to get me anything for my birthday. It's fine. You know, and they go, well, it's sweet that they want to do that. But then it's also like, you better get me something for my birthday. You know, that's, I mean, you're going to honor me, you know, that, that type of thing. So that's not, ex- it's almost like wh- what he really has in mind, because Paul didn't mind working f- with, with, with a uh, tent maker and doing all that. He didn't mind providing his own living. He didn't mind any of that. But it's sometimes like with our children where I don't mind being treated this way, but it's not good for you to treat me this way. Does that make sense? Like, you know, you, you have to call your kids out sometimes and say, you know, I don't really mind this. This isn't for me. Like, I don't, here's a good one. I don't really need you to call me yes, sir, but you need you to call me yes, sir, if that makes sense. So it's like, I don't care for me, but it's for you. So he ended up addressing that a few times in the New Testament, saying like, you know, I am providing this, but also the church has has an obligation to provide this as well. So they end up discussing that. But also keep in mind, a lot of times Paul was in a place planting a church and the people that he is dealing with are very, very new to the Christian faith, baby Christians. And he doesn't want to put any kind of burden on them. So a lot of times he would actually supplement his income by, you know, making tents and things like that. And again, to what scale, we don't really know. I mean, he he was traveling all over the place. So it's not like he had some big wagon full of tools that he could just set up shop and, you know, and start making tents, he would have had to find somebody like Priscilla and Aquila that he could kind of hook up with, maybe work for. He wasn't running his own business or anything like that. Uh, Plus, I mean, he never knew how long he was going to be in a city. I mean, some of these places he was in for a few weeks and he got kicked out, so you can't really do much in that time frame. And not only that, there were, in all of these cities, all of these big cities that we're talking about, there were these trade guilds that controlled that. So you couldn't just pop in a city set up shop and start building tents. It didn't work like that. You know, there were these trade guilds that controlled all of that. So he would have had to have hooked up with someone like Priscilla and Aquila or work for someone else. You know, he wasn't necessarily just operating his own business. We get this in Acts twenty thirty three when he's talking uh, to the Ephesians. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And again, he didn't do this everywhere, but to them he was saying, look, for those of you that think, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here and I'm just taken from the churches, or because Paul would take offerings. Usually he was taking offerings to go help start another church or to go support another church. But he was saying, for those of you that have accused me of that, he said, you know when I was with you, I never asked for anything. And I was working with my own hands to take care of myself and those that were with me and building the churches at the same time. So that was a a huge commitment and sacrifice on his part. And I'm glad that he made it. Amen. I'm glad that he made that sacrifice because, you know, uh, 
well, it's obvious. I mean, the churches that he started and the letters that he did, and, you know, it's just, it's just continued giving on for hundreds of years, and we're still receiving from what he did to date. 